0: They can do anything they want to, do to us. We might not be back. I
1: might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're gonna have to keep on saying that. You're gonna have to say that I am a proletarian.
2: Fred Hampton got it right. And we're getting it wrong. The youth of today aren't calling themselves revolutionary. The workers aren't fighting for their class interests. Sure, at the universities they might be talking about things like racism, imperialism, and class inequality, but their liberal postmodernist mindset lacks a radical understanding of the causes of these problems. Is there a way to reverse this trend? There is. Red Star U. A totally new method of agitation. It's simple and it works. The most radical thinkers presenting their view dank memes and propaganda on our side for a change. We destroy bourgeois myths like American exceptionalism, the possibility of economic equality under capitalism, because we have faith that reason and the science of socialism are fully compatible. These are things students almost never learn. But when they do, they will have the theoretical tools they need to question and probe their bourgeois liberal ideology. Liberated from capitalist hegemony, there's no telling how revolutionary they'll get. Reason beats superstition and materialism beats idealism every time. Just give us a few minutes of your time and we'll do the rest. Thousands are already watching. Red Star U explains why socialism is the only revolutionary force that can make the world a better place, five minutes at a time. To win the revolution, all we need is you, Red Star You. Subscribe now.
3: to this edition of the three left show i'm your host dan platt but you won't be hearing much of me this time i'm doing something quite a bit different uh experiment for me at least since i'm going to be using a format that i believe is tried and tested and true in my college years uh, i listened to a lot of a podcast called the best of the left which took Pieces uh, video or audio vignettes from various radio shows and programs and splice them together based on topic And it really does goes a long way to educating the listener about a various topic from The left though the best of the left used a lot of uh, Sources that were progressive left of center certainly but very rarely radical revolutionary perspectives. I had to go elsewhere, though sometimes I got pulled towards more radical media via the few times that the best of the left would use such programs. Um, and as it went on, it did use more anti-capitalist clips, uh, mostly after Occupy. So uh, I'm doing something similar today. I mean, basically my format is usually collecting a bunch of similar pieces of media from across the left. Or other basic reporting via text and then I read that text so you don't have to so it's mostly in the form of articles instead of video or audio media because that's fairly easy to get a hold of though difficult to assemble by topic which I do thus the utility of the show right so I'm gonna do the same thing but do so with YouTube clips and videos that I have bookmarked over the last least two years, uh, for the purpose of doing a show like this, since this month is a pretty bad month for doing live episodes for me. So, let me just introduce the clips you're going to be listening to. So you just heard uh, the first clip from Red Star Videos, video called Red Star You, play on You if you didn't know. Next, you will hear a clip from Chapo Trap House about um, Obama's narcissism. Uh, also referring to other books, mostly talking about riffing on his biographies and the latest one they published last year. Next, a member of the Chapo Chop House crew, that's a podcast, uh, Matt Crispin, gives uh, something of a rant on love and solidarity, uh, touching on being alive, and I would call this clip, you know, the anguish of being a leftist, seeing injustice in the world, seeing the uh, imbalance of power and, and poverty, and knowing that global poverty exists and that majority of people are worse off than a minority, he, he has very deep empathetic emotions as a result. See if you make it through that without tearing up as well. Uh, following him is a similar type of video clip from The Serfs, a man named Lance, a Canadian uh, Twitch streamer and YouTuber, And he speaks of alt-right violence, uh, but mostly any type of shooting. It was his reaction after there were two mass shootings in one day. And now that it's warm and the uh, pandemic is abating, we might be seeing, well, in the last week, there was two new mass shootings, at least in one week, not in the same day. But following that is then a longer clip from Zero Books. Which was made in uh, Douglas Lane, the editor there, a uh, man who speaks of critical theory and philosophy, follows basically right after the o primary in twenty twenty, in the Democratic primary, and he speaks of conspiracies, capitalist realism, particularly how the game is rigged, but is there any other way that it could be? Not particularly, uh, as he thinks. As not only speaks of structures or just the usual economics, but actually our own mindscape. The last clip of the hour will be from a YouTuber, Yugplink, or Pink. I do not know how to pronounce it, actually. He's a Russian, I assume, maybe, or Slavic at any rate. Uh, And he speaks of how equality and modesty, which are two leftist stereotypes, and uh, he goes over that and debunks them. Uh, This Kind of follows some of the other clips in that, the theme of the inequality, and that is what leftists are truly opposing—that we see inequality, and we have a deep, emotional, and moral problem with it. So that will wrap, and that will be the next hour you'll be listening to. I'll come back in the second hour, and you may also—you'll hear my voice uh, once or twice. As Eclipse clips play, if there is something completely visual that you cannot infer by listening to.
4: Oh, yeah! I see. The other thing everyone's talking about are these, these excerpts from like Obama's like part one of his new book that he was just. Hell like, yes! What is this autobiography number eight for this? Yeah, book yeah. Guy? <laughs> this
1: guy loves writing about himself. Yeah, he really <laughs> loves writing about himself. Mm,
4: uh, he was like, uh, like yeah, uh, yeah. I read, uh, I read Marx and uh, Hegel in college, but I was uh, only trying to get some. It's almost as like ribs. Uh, to. It's almost as like
1: Ob- It's almost as if Obama, in his like in the the way that he performs his narcissism, creates the same like psychic identification with liberals that Trump does with conservatives. Because they are in both cases seeking not someone to infect a policy, because policy doesn't matter; nothing can change. They want to see themselves. Yeah. They want to see themselves in power. And Obama's narcissism is the narcissism of a cultivated, cosmopolitan, uh, uh, college-educated liberal. And, and they respond to that. And those, they don't think it's narcissism. They think he actually does care about other people, damn it, because they think they care about other people.
5: Yeah, Obama is just one of the most uncaring people in
1: the An world. absolute, world. Like a, a narcissist in the purest sense. Like sociopath, yeah. whatever. Like, yeah, he's in power. He clearly has abstracted out uh like he is he is able in his mind to abstract the 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 pain caused by any decision he does away from him it's it's a system that exists beyond him he is only there to serve it because we've talked about how uh, trump like uniquely uh acts like being president is just watching himself be president obama did that too yeah like bush was the last decider like bush was the last president to go into office uh, and, and really, maybe he didn't even go into office, but 9-11 gave him the idea of actually trying to use the office to affect anything, and it failed miserably. And, every pres- and the presidents we've had since then have metabolized that at some level, either consciously or unconsciously, and so they are just there to be there. They're there to experience it. They're there to have the experience of watching power, but they're not there to intervene in any way because you can't.
5: Yeah obama i mean if trump shows the dangers of a narcissist who is incompetent that is to say that he channels all of people's worst impulses but also people's desperation and uh just channels it all into more of the same which is just skimming off the top of the the at rapidly emptying casino
0: yeah
5: and uh random culture wars of the week where you just sort of take it out on whichever group it is this time or, you know, whatever orc-resembling army colonel or Lev Farness or whatever. Obama shows the danger of a competent narcissist, which is he takes all of people's, yes, hopes and dreams and uh, base desires for a better world and turns it into nothing but then tells them that that nothing makes them a good and realistic person
4: yep and you know like my my point about the like back to going back to biden and his ten thousand dollars of student loan write-off like you remember when obama like was elected president in 2008 and like even by then i was like pretty jaded and cynical but like you remember the things like that they were saying that they were gonna do yep i mean it seemed like it was a lot fucking heftier than this bullshit. oh yeah and like we all know what happened with that so like Think how penny ante, like, the, the offer up front is now. Like, think just in, just in like, two presidential terms, just, like, how much that has been winnowed down. Yep. Just, like, even well, what they're willing to lie about that they're going to, like, say they're going to try to do has Obama, been so impossibly winnowed down.
1: Like, the way that Obama, I think, the way he viewed specifically his second term, I would say that Obama, in his second term, uh, and definitely after uh, the, 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 the Republicans took the Senate, uh, he at some dim level was aware of, and it certainly is reflected in the dynamic of power that he essentially functioned as a constitutional monarch, and Mitch McConnell was his prime minister. Yeah, like he was the Queen of England, and and uh, and Mc- McConnell was uh, Boris Johnson. Like that was the that was his like uh, his control of power is, is a constitutional monarchical terms. So that's how attenuated his control of anything was, but his perception of himself as president didn't change at all. Because he was always assuming that real power happened elsewhere. That real decisions did
4: not ever happen in a room he was in. At least not in the White House. Yeah. Uh, let me be clear. Um, well, what, would you, uh, what would you do if I uh, took you out for a nice uh, dog dinner? Would you let me kiss you? <laughs> I'm silly. Ah. <laughs> Am I gay?
5: Not in the slightest. Don't believe me. Don't care. Uh, I, uh, I get by. <laughs> I'm silly. Uh, he uh, I guess like you know his Obama's frequent autobiographies they remind me of another guy, a guy I like, Mr. Nascard, Karl Ove. Oh. <laughs> but, I, you know, it, may, it makes me think Karl Ove's autobiographies, the point of the My Struggle and its endless volumes and pages, they're sort of amazing. They're, in my opinion, they're a deconstruction of the personal essay. They're a flawless. And I thought about this a lot because the detail is so insane that I Don't know how much of it happened or that he's recalling exactly, but I don't think that's the point. The point is to create a simulation of a flawless, gapless accounting of a human life that strikes directly against the idea that you can extract meaning from every cultural symbol and event and personal interaction. It's the idea is like, oh, you think like a a certain like type of guy watches a type of movie and that makes the makes them bad or like the, you know, we, we should, uh, we should litigate some like culture war issue over manspreading and there should be endless just personal essays about people's boring lives that dictate public morality. Here's everything. Here's Mm. everything that has ever happened to me. And it's meaningless. (laughs) Here's the death of my father. Here's my marriage falling apart. Here's me conspiring to drink beers when I was 14. Here's me playing my first music gig. Here's, you know, the birth of my child. What does it mean? What is the unifying meaning of this? Nothing. Nothing. And it's brilliant in that way because they're beautifully written and they're gripping in this weird way, but also very boring. And I love that because, it, like, it is a sort of, like, nihilistic uh, piece of art.
1: Yeah, and but, he's but, but, self-conscious but, about the nihilism. Right. Like he said, there... yeah,
5: yeah, he's self-conscious about the nihilism and he's self-conscious about himself and about the idea of life meaning nothing. And he's very self-hating... And I love those books. But Obama's are like the opposite. It's taking very selected events and telling you that they mean everything, even though – because with Nausgaard, he's telling you it means nothing. But you go deeper, and it's like there is something there. There is some meaning and some beauty even in the nonsense of life. It's very Ecclesiastes. like, but Obama's is telling you this means everything. And then when you pull back and look at the grand picture of what he's done in his life, you're like, no, this means nothing. This means nothing.
1: He he, – gives the game away in that respect because I re- there was an interview with him that came out with the release of these excerpts where he talked about how he fought with his editor to keep stuff in because it's super long and it's only the first half. And he said that there was a lot of detail that he insisted on keeping in that his editor questioned about. And the example he did is that he went, apparently in the book he explains how chintzy the layout at, uh, at the G20 is. Like how they have like, shitty, like, uh, like pens that you'd get at a, at a, like a trade show. And he thinks that that's important for people. And it's like, well, no, that's important for you because it's part of your endless quest to be disenchanted at every moment because you keep assuming the next vista, the next achievement, the next thing you participate in is going to f- fill the hole in the center of you. And then it never does. And then that's represented to you in things like, oh, wow, these are really shitty pens. And it's like, yeah, of co- who gives a shit? That only matters to you because you have decided that the sum total of like meaning is your personal growth. And so you're just are, you are compulsively articulating all the ways that you fail to do that, that you keep coming to the mountaintop and being disenchanted and just keep going forward because of your monomaniacal narcissism, the power you just assuredly as it does Trump, like a goddamn shark that can't keep s- stop
5: swimming. And th- that, 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 that reminds me of something now says that in like the first few pages of book. One of my struggle goes, um, I do, like, I don't know why this happens, and I'm sorry it does, but, like, I just don't—I didn't cry when my son was born. I didn't, like—I don't cry when I look in his eyes. Like, I'm such, a piece of shit. I'm such a fucking bad father, but I cry when I see this one specific painting in the Louvre. Like, what is wrong with me? And it's like he's he's doing the opposite where he's like, no, I've gotten objectively everything that gives you meaning— and something in it, like, it's not registering me with me and something is wrong with me. And my reading of that is that, like, that's just that's could be due to childhood. That can be due to just how you grow as a person, how you process emotions. It doesn't make you a piece. But it's interesting that he puts it that way. Whereas Obama just runs over all these people to get to that summit and is like, <laughs> the pens suck. I've been failed again by the world. <laughs> all right. The world cannot be as perfect
6: as I am. You can be my personal ambassador to the
1: world. And if you're ever less than certain, I will be your iron curtain and I will be your Berlin Wall and I will never fall. out that is crying because his, his girlfriend. Theresa May got owned. He's whining like the simpering, half-bearded toad that he is. The old gave us Trump. The young are trying to give us Corbin. Time to restrict the franchise to parents of under-18-year-old kids. How about we even put you in a barrel and roll you down a hill? How's that for a good idea, you, you fucking tubby shed? How's that? I got an idea. That's a good idea. I think that's a great idea. I think America would be united behind that policy. You worthless head. I really hate Ross. A lot of people don't hate him. I hate him. I hate him deeply. I hate them all. I really do. I hate the tradcasts. My hate is pure in the Alexander Coburn sense. I really do hate them all. I can't not hate them. Like I look at them. I, I read them. And I don't feel like that kind of like, oh, this guy's funny because he's stupid. I just, I want them, I, I hate him. Maybe that's bad. Maybe I shouldn't hate him. Maybe that proves that there's some sort of dark heart within me, you know. I'm like Lenin. you know, give me control of the state and I'm going to start doing purges and, you know, creating the fucking checkup. But I don't think that's true. I think these people do genuine harm to the world. And me wanting to kill them, or at least see them deeply humiliated, is... Uh, is me standing up for humanity. I think I hope I like I mean we should all have a chance, you know. People suck, but the people we all deserve a chance to suck. We all deserve a chance cuz we get pulled out of the fuck we get pulled out of nothing. We get pulled out of the ether into consciousness that we did not ask for and that is not under our control. We are given facilities and abilities that are also not within our control. And then we are set loose in a world where we are going to have a very brief, finite amount of time to love and be loved and to experience and to think and to exist before that's snuffed out. And that is something that every single one of us shares. That is a unifying human experience. That's all we have. We have this brief moment where we are called out of nothingness for a microsecond in the, in the span of existence. We're called into being. Beyond, without our consent, we're given abilities that we don't have any choice over. And we're all unified by that. And since we all share that, can't we make it a world where everybody who is essentially i mean to get i don't want to get too schopenhauer but you know cursed with that burden of consciousness can at least experience as much richness and love and safety and security as anybody else like how can you look at someone who didn't choose to be born who did not choose their abilities and facilities in this world and say, you deserve nothing but pain and torment until a horrible death. And I deserve everything. I deserve riches, and I deserve greatness, and I deserve comfort for things that I similarly had no choice in, had no influence in. I am a winner of a genetic lottery. And as a result of that, I should have everything, and you should have nothing. And the difference between us is the flip of a f***ing coin. That is the monstrousness that I can't abide. I can't... To think that there are people in this world who accept that and think that's how it should be. That you should condemn people in millions and billions... To torment and agony and death and fear and loneliness. Because you need to have everything. Because you were born with everything. The vile maxim. The vile maxim. Adam Smith's vile maxim. And it's hard to confront because it is so monstrous and so evil. But it's something that your neighbors believe that your parents believe that your loved ones believe it's something that people accept as just the way it is that is what life is it is you're shot into you're shot out of oblivion in the consciousness and you will either be cursed or blessed based on the whim of genes and geography and that is that and the the people who say that that is that are of course the people who achieved achieved the extraordinary uh, beneficence of luck, and then decide that they're going to ascribe that into the universe and turn that into re- an unmutable truth. But it doesn't. It can't. It can't be like that. It doesn't have to. We have it in our power to make it different maybe we won't maybe we'll keep burning carbon and killing each other until the whole we all just cook in our own juices or maybe we'll break outside of our bubbles of fear and distrust to accept common humanity and embrace the burden of that but also the absolute liberation, the liberation from fear, the liberation, because like those alt-right suckers who want to live in a world of, like, of, of, of racial holy war, like the world that they imagine is a nightmare realm where you can never be safe, you can never feel secure, you can never feel love because you're under constant siege. It's a nightmare, but a world of solidarity, a world Where every life that is brought into being without its consent, given facilities and abilities without their choice, can live surrounded by safety and love instead of misery. That's a world we can have.
7: So so it seems like
8: two mass shootings have happened in the span of 24 hours. And one of the most horrifying things about that is how unhorrified we all are. Because it feels really normal. And it shouldn't. And obviously, I mean, the usual song and dance is happening. We've got people on the the liberal side, the Democrats saying that, of course, we need more gun control. And we've got people on the right wing saying that uh, the root of this happens to be in violent video games, which is kind of new in the sense that it's old. I didn't expect to see that outside of the 1990s happening again. I mean, that's kind of thoroughly been debunked, but you know, here we are. And as far as all this is, it's going to keep happening. And it's going to keep getting worse and worse. And the really sad thing about it all is we kind of know why at this point. I mean, the United States is such a hyperbolic plutocracy at this point. It's such an incredible concentration of wealth into the hands of the very few. And in just uh, the Trump administration alone, the tax cuts that he has put forth is going to continue to concentrate that wealth. And it's going to continue to suffocate the lower classes. And I know this all comes as a surprise. An age where we apparently have uh, record uh, employment, record numbers of jobs, job creations are just skyrocketing. How does any of that make sense? And what all those statistics never tell you is that salary jobs with benefits, with health insurance, with, you know, God forbid, unions, those are in free fall. What is skyrocketing is temp work, contract work, and of course the app economy. The app economy is doing just fine. And I mean, thanks to Uber, you can basically work forever. You can get off your regular job. You can go home. And instead of going to sleep, you can drive a car for $6 an hour. And while people feel more and more suffocated, while people feel more and more desperate, because at the end of the day, they have to work every square inch of their lives away. They're being told by millionaires who are being paid by billionaires that the root of their problem isn't in automation, it isn't in, you know, neoliberal globalization where jobs are being shipped overseas wherever it's cheaper, uh, where robots are taking over jobs wherever they can. They're being told by these millionaires on television, on YouTube, on wherever they see them, that the root of their problem is in the other, that the root of the problem is immigrants. But the root of the problem is people taking their jobs. The root of the problem is people trying to replace them. There's a great replacement taking place. And so you combine this desperation, suffocation with a narrative. And so you've got people who are unemployed or people who are employed but still can't make ends meet and they're desperate and they spend a lot of time online. And what do they learn online? that the root of their problem isn't in a system that's set up to slowly siphon wealth from the bottom all the way up to the top. They're taught that the problem is the other, that the problem's just across the border, that the problem is coming to take their jobs, or the problem's already here, that it's taking their jobs, that refugees aren't people escaping horrific atrocities, in large part set up by the United States. That these people are coming single handedly to replace them, that there's a great replacement in the works. And so you've got these millionaires who are paid by billionaires to go on to television, to go into magazines, to go onto YouTube, and continue to push this narrative, to continue to make people afraid in order to distract you from the real issues, in order to distract you from the fact that at the end of the day, it's automation, it's Globalization, it's a whole host of factors that are replacing jobs, that are removing jobs, that are making jobs obsolete. There's a whole host of factors that are taking wealth, that are concentrating wealth, that are moving wealth away from the lower and middle classes all the way up to the 0.001%. Not the 1%, the 0.001%. Because we live in a day and age when 45 individuals own the collective wealth of half the planet. And as long as that's the case, people are going to keep feeling more and more desperate. And they're going to look for answers. They're going to look for answers in all kinds of places. And there's a lot of millionaires, paid by billionaires, willing to give them those answers. And this is going to keep happening. It's like the first sparks in a fire, you know. At first, they come in frequently, and then as the fire starts to rage... The sparks start to overwhelm you, and suddenly, two in a day won't seem that unusual. It'll be normal. That is truly horrifying.
9: Hello, Zero Books readers. It's me again, Douglas Lane. And in this video, I'll be considering conspiracies And capitalist realism. This version tracks the limousine and maintains President Kennedy and Governor Connolly at center frame. This version is only in slow motion. Eugene Thacker has written that the evil demon in Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy, this idea that there might be a malevolent god who is constantly deceiving us about the world, he thinks, Thacker thinks, that. This figure is enough to topple or discredit all philosophical inquiry. But for me, Descartes' assertion, I think, therefore I am, seems really solid, like a knockdown argument. And when I start to doubt the substance of my life, when I start to worry about who I am or how I know my place in the world, I think of Descartes. I think of, I think, therefore I am. However, when I recall my life, when I consider all that thinking that I've done, I find that, for the most part, it's other people who've been doing my thinking for me.
5: From the multiple multiple conspiracy model, it makes more sense to me than the idea that there are no conspiracies, which is nonsense, because anybody who's ever raped for a corporation, those corporations conspire all the time. Politicians conspire all the time. Pot dealers conspire not to get caught by the narcs. The art world is full of conspiracies. Conspiracy is natural primate behavior. But there is no one conspiracy smart enough to run everything. If there was, the world would start to make sense.
9: The resignation of Troy Price, former chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, comes along with allegations of at least the appearance of cronyism and a comment from Judy Downs, the executive director of the Polk County Democrats, that some of Price's decisions just made it really hard to defend against accusations of cronyism or conspiracy, frankly. Despite the objections of many pundits, it seems clear that the Iowa Democratic Party, under the direction of Price and then Tom Perez, conspired to undermine the Sanders campaign and to fix the results in favor of Pete Buttigieg. While the malfunctioning app can be put down to incompetence, the slow rollout of votes over several days, the decision to release results from precincts that favored Buttigieg first, the refusal to correct errors even after they were reported on by precinct captains and the New York Times, along with the announcement of a Buttigieg victory on CNN, when the AP, the New York Times, and even the news department of CNN all refused to report a conclusive winner due to those errors cannot be excused away as innocent mistakes but are instead evidence of deliberate manipulation or of systemic bias or both the Iowa Democratic Party and the DNC have both exposed themselves as corrupt And in the aftermath, it's tempting to fall into the prevailing ideology of American politics. That is, it's tempting to believe in the conspiracy theory version of history. Even though the system is rigged, the dice are loaded, and the fight is fixed, most if not all of our problems would remain, even if the Democrats and Republicans were as pure as driven snow. To focus on corruption and conspiracies as a source of our social problems or even as the source of our political dysfunction is to misunderstand the relationship between cause and effect. In the case of Iowa we should ask ourselves not whether the Democratic Party is corrupt but why it is that the political parties in the United States are designed so that this sort of corruption is not only possible but permissible, or even
7: encouraged. Donald Trump's victory. Donald Trump is not the cause of all of our problems, and we're making a mistake when we act like he is.
2: That's right. He is
7: is a symptom of a disease that has been building up in our communities for years and decades. And it is our job to get to the harder work of actually curing the disease.
9: U.S. political parties are private associations that can, for the most part, determine change or even violate their own internal rules during the nominating process the US Constitution protects their right it protects the right of all Americans to free expression and free association the aim of the First Amendment is to protect individual liberty and to empower civil society However, a problem arises from this division between the state and business on the one hand and the private realm of everyday life on the other. The problem is this, the realm of everyday life is structured by the social relations that mediate business relations and the state. In fact, without the realm of commerce and the state, there could not be such a thing as civil society, no such thing as everyday life. And the reverse is also true. When I was a kid, maybe 13 years old, I wanted to be the greatest American hero. Now, if you remember the eighties, you'll know that I'm not just referring to any American hero, but a particular one. You remember that show, the greatest American hero, that actor who played the role? Well, When I consider him now, you think about him in today's lingo, he's a sort of a, a cuck. In Marx's essay, On the Jewish Question, Marx put our dilemma this way, quote, Man was not freed from religion, but received religious freedom. He was not freed from property, He received freedom to own property. He was not freed from the egoism of business. He received freedom to engage in business. The Democratic Party has constitutionally protected rights. The party has the right to create, change, and violate its own rules for selecting a nominee for president. Bourgeois freedom works this way. In the process of establishing the right to free association, A right that the state cannot impinge upon, the state ends up protecting powerful state interests from those who have been unlucky in business and politics. In our free market society, nothing one needs is free, but everything has a price. In the realm of politics, there are no prohibitions limiting political organization. Anyone can seek power. But to get the power, you have to have either money and or political power from the start or gain favor with those who do. Bourgeois equality requires inequality. Our freedom as individuals requires our collective power be held in chains. For instance, everyone has a constitutionally protected right to free expression, and anyone with an internet connection can potentially reach millions. But the real power isn't in the hands of those individuals, but rather is held by those firms that have accumulated the most capital. I really can't stand Baby Yoda.
3: Douglas Lane has just taken a sip from a Bugs Bunny mug, implying that he is such a stinker.
9: Mark Fisher, in his book Capitalist Realism, described his core concept. He described capitalist realism this way. Capitalist realism is not a particular type of realism. It is more like realism in itself. As Marx and Engels themselves observed in the Communist Manifesto, capital has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of philistine sentimentalism, in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value, and in place of the numberless, indefeasible chartered freedoms, has set up that single unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. Fischer comments on Marx and Engels' observation this way, Capitalism is what is left when beliefs have collapsed at the level of ritual or symbolic elaboration, and all that is left is a consumer spectator trudging through the ruins and the relics. When I was a little kid, uh, like five, six years old, I used to dream about this cartoon character named Timer. Probably none of you will remember this thing, but it was this little blob that uh, was part of a campaign of public service announcements, and I used to dream about him, this yellow blob in a top hat, and he would appear at the beginning of my sleep cycle, right, when I was falling asleep, maybe into a a REM state, there he would be, pop, and he'd go, time for timer. You're about to be in dreamland, and then in the morning, when I was uh, about to wake up, I was having maybe a nightmare or just a dream. There'd be again, "Pop, time for timer, time to wake up." I don't know what that means.
6: Hi, time for timer and time
7: to
9: Capitalism make a Capitalism healthy... isn't just what is left behind when all illusions are stripped away; rather, it is what you live with when the source of religious illusion. The material reality that creates religious delusion still remains. It is what you get when religion comes to earth and is materialized. In his book The German Ideology, Karl Marx wrote, the way in which men produce their means of subsistence depends first of all on the nature of the actual means of subsistence they find in existence and have to reproduce. This mode of production must not be considered simply as being the production of the physical existence of the individuals. Rather, it is a definite form of activity of these individuals, a definite form of expressing their life, a definite mode of life on their part. As individuals express their life, so they are. What they are, therefore, coincides with their production, both with what they produce and with how they produce it. The nature of individuals thus depends on the material conditions determining their production. We are creating our lives. We're creating the form that we use to organize our lives. And yet this form of life was also something passed down to us, it's something we've inherited. So when we try to escape the structure of our lives, when we try to turn to say politics, say electoral politics as a way out, we find that it's ready to hand, but it is also already of the system that we're trying to dismantle. We can't help but reproduce the world as it already is. And yet there are no tools available to us that aren't produced by capital.
10: If you're new to this channel, hello. I make videos loosely based around the Marxian analysis of the world and if this sounds scary to you then you're kind of at the right place. I usually make far longer, more in depth videos on very specific topics and stay away from broad theory analysis. But I felt like these are points so commonly misunderstood that I needed to give my two cents on them. Here's hoping it reaches the right people. For analysis, which inspired half of this video, please check out Zoe Baker and CAC Philosophy, now Jonas Cheka's videos, which will be linked below. Rarely who can cold-heartedly say that the way we run the world right now is sustainable or achieves net positive outcomes for the majority of the world's population. If you've looked around or read more than half a Buzzfeed article this year, you know we are living in a real-life example of how the way we have set up the world, defined as capitalism, is incapable of handling crisis. Not because we don't have enough resources, manpower or will, but because the main thing society is organized around isn't based on human well-being, but profit extraction. Yeah, yeah, the cliché criticism of capitalism, so typical, I know. Profit bad, helping people good. So what is it exactly that we left-wingers propose? Is it egalitarian equality of all? A world in which we are all happy with what we have. People are of equal height. Race is literally unnoticeable because we're all colorblind somehow. Everyone lives forever and churches are turned into hospitals. A science fiction universe that would be so unbelievable that no one would even sign off a budget on making a movie around it. Everyone looking the same, dressing the same, eating the same, earning the same, and being given the same, no matter how much work they do or don't do. Seriously? Is that really what people think Marxists want? Do you genuinely believe that modern Marxists, a whole group of people who think everyone around them is missing the bloody point of it all, who consider the liberal and conservative to be as politically literate as a gorilla most of the time, to dream of a world of total unadulterated equality? Let me spoil it for you. They don't. Good old lobster man would run in right now and deliver a line only Tommy Bouzeau would dream of performing. There you go, they admit to it. They only use rhetoric of equality to set up a society in which they can simply replace the previous elite, the rich, and rule through the iron fists of the party. Well, my Benz's addicted carnivorous crab friend, as lots of Twitter Marxists like to say, please read a book. The proposition of complete equality among everyone is at its core non-materially plausible and therefore non-Marxist. It's what it is. Egalitarianism's popularity stands from the French revolutionary term Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, apologies if I butchered that, and it was a term very useful for the time and place in which it was devised. But, as material conditions change and develop, and as the newly formed class superstructure grew after the French Revolution, the idea of complete equality became one which lacked universality. What is meant by this is excellently put forward by Marx in a document called The Critique of the Gotha Program. There, a very straightforward but brilliant idea is introduced. Equality can't really be applied to society as a whole, but needs to be looked at on a case-by-case principle. For example, Maria who has two kids and Ivanka who has none receive the same wage. A part of Maria's money will have to be spent on her children, and she would therefore hold less usable exchange value, hold less money, for herself, which would indirectly make Ivanka richer, automatically destroying the very initial reasoning of equality. Here's another example. Should everyone be treated equally during a massive flood where certain parts of town were hit heavier than others? Should the same amount of effort and time be invested in saving everyone or should the ones with the biggest threat to their life be assisted first? As you can see equality while useful as a rhetorical ideal is in its very essence problematic because it is not applicable wholesale and therefore is not ideologically or materially very useful. When applied to work it becomes especially problematic. If we equalize how much one earns per hour, then the one who can work longer will inevitably be better off than whoever works less. We might have equalized their hourly wages, but they still end up being unequal. What if we make all the total wages the same? Well, then the one who works more but receives the same will inherently end up with the short end of the stick. This is why Daddy, Marx and Engels prefer to concentrate on something far more materially significant, realistic and generally applicable, known as class. It is by eliminating or at the very least minimizing the relationship between the exploiter and the exploited, which exists between owners and workers, that we can come closer to a system in which everyone is playing by the same rules on the same field. I kind of honestly find this ironic and a bit funny because in a way Marxists, the very people who are accused of being too utopian with their understanding of so-called human nature are the ones most critical of it, even though they don't believe in it. The Marxist, through the abolishment of class hierarchy as we know it today, does away with the biggest tools at the disposal of the lazy and ill-meaning to amass great wealth while the worker, the actual producer of goods and services, suffers. If human nature really is greedy, then shouldn't we try to limit the accessibility humans have to tools that can turn that greed into power? Well even though for completely different reasons, that's exactly what one could say the left wants. The leveling of the playing field does not mean belief in equality of outcome or equality of opportunity. The latter, while a bit less radical, is unfortunately also an unattainable goal. Even in a non-class society, people will be born with different capabilities in different regions of the world and under different circumstances, and will therefore never be given true equality of opportunity. Only in a post-organic and post-material scenario can we even possibly begin to imagine something like this. But that is a story for another time. This brings us to our second point, modesty and Marxism. I've been raised by two parents of rather contrasting beliefs in pretty much well, everything. And therefore I was exposed to two very different outlooks towards modesty, one which saw great value in it while the other rejected it as weakness. They were both right and wrong at the same time. I find that modesty towards actions, feats and successes is a healthy habit to keep. In contrast, gloating over the smallest thing you've done in your life as if you were a babushka talking about her successful grandson will only attract other insecure people who are much more obsessed with uh, appearing successful, whatever that might mean, than they actually are. Therefore, modesty on its own is pretty great. But unfortunately, nothing stands on its own in a world governed by systems and ideologies. In capitalism, the most common form of modesty is seen as a defense mechanism towards your superiors, be it your government or your boss, and that is very dangerous. What do I mean by this? Let's do a little thought exercise. Is it really modesty when you accept the fact that you haven't been promoted at the workplace you've been at for the last five years? Or is it fear disguised in the socially accepted notion of humility? is quietly looking at the ground while your boss shit-talks you, modesty, or fear is letting your partner boss you around your home, modesty, or fear, is seeing all your work creating wealth for everyone but yourself and accepting that as reality, modesty, or fear. there is nothing modest in letting anyone trample all over you, and most of you know this. But why is it that when applied to material wealth, it is only the poor who should be modest? What is this bipolar idea that at the same time we should celebrate the successes of the wealthy while promoting modesty for the worker? I'll tell you what it is. Propaganda. Always has been, always will be. Now, I'm not saying that the idea of modesty itself is propaganda, but weaponizing it as some sort of greater social ideal for those who are struggling is just that. The attempt to manufacture consent by telling you there is greatness in suffering. But also, quite maddeningly, that there is also greatness in wealth and comfort. It's exactly in this blend of the religious idea of humility and its incredibly contrasting ideology of capitalist eternal growth that has birthed this weird mess of a self-denouncing culture. Modesty and most other values of that are split in two halves. One which applies to the majority, sit there, be quiet and be thankful, and another to the economic minority, where handouts are given out to the rich on the daily and humility is never considered as an option. Modesty has been co-opted as a lifestyle in which believing you deserve more is seen as amoral and indecent. But as I mentioned previously, the extent to which it is unequally applied throughout the different strata of society is simply baffling. It's through rejecting the current status quo that great ideas have moved their species forward, be it through the rejection of monarchic hierarchies and feudal work, where listening to your king and local lord was the modest, kind thing to do, or religious dogmatism and the patriarchy, where the modesty of a woman was conflated with the obedience and unquestionable servitude at home. It's by rejecting the version of modesty which the current system is trying to sell us on that we can see the material reality which we find ourselves in, which to say in layman terms is pretty shit. So stop taking the boot as if it's some sort of high-end philosophical idea and bite back. There is greatness in modesty, sure, but not in cowardice. Conclusion.
3: Fucking finally. God damn it.
10: So, how do these two concepts fit and why did I bundle them together in the same video? Well, honestly, it's quite simple. It's the two biggest stereotypes of the socialist that could think of and they both feed off of each other. The image of the socialist or anarchist many have in their heads is a someone who has failed in their pursuit of greatness in capitalism and is therefore trying to pull everyone down to their level, equalizing others in order to selfishly raise themselves up. A petty creature either dreaming of worlds where all are the same or a quasi-spiritual hack who thinks all should abide by their weird notion of lower self-worth. But as we've seen, that's not as close to the truth as some on the right would like to think. The socialist ideal lays in rejecting the hierarchical injustices of capitalism and rightly calls for the rejection of poverty as some sort of spiritual modest aspiration, while at the same time understanding the material realities which stop us from dreaming of the impossible. Marxists, in their hyperbolic realism, reject being humbled by how we run our world today, while at the same time Rejecting to daydream about unachievable futures. It's a mistake for the wealthy to think of leftists as people who want less or are content with less. A mistake that will cost them dearly.
3: Welcome back to the second half of uh, Dan Platt's mind poppers via the three left show where i'm playing youtube uh, clips from youtube from basically a backlog of videos that i've bookmarked over the last year that i thought were really nifty keen really insightful in some way the first half uh, the last hour you listened to were kind of about it's uh the struggle of being a leftist intellectually our mind space This continues into the second half, first with the video Our Lady of Perpetual Correctness via Peter Coffin, who wrote a book titled uh, Constructed Realities in You, kind of about how social media and the, well, just general cyberspace over the whole has created constructed realities where we have individual realities, individual brands, personal brands, any kind of attacks that and he made this video in the context of fake news, uh, alternative facts, and, you know, Trumpism amok. And the next clip is from uh, an interview from Primo Nutmeg, a guy I have a problem with, but it's purely political, I assure you. Uh, he's interviewing uh, Richard Wolf democracy at work guy and Marxist. Uh, professor, and he's asked a question about anarchism or Noam Chomsky, and he he kind of goes into how the left lacks organization. Why is something explored by a other uh, communist writer, but an Indian one, uh, Vijay Prashad, Uh, so he gives a lecture, and this is the first kind of part of that. I would love to play all of it, but that would be a show in itself because it's, you know, an hour long. But I will definitely want to take clips of him in the future because this is only covering a few parts of his talk about kind of the tragedy or the disaster for the left that was the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, about a year or, two or so after I was born. He speaks generally about the defeat of the Western left, and the, the two points he covers are you know the erased history and the bad theory that the left has. Number four then expands upon this a little bit, or at least some of this parts, with a video from uh, Daniel Torres, and a uh, Hispanic uh, LA dwelling leftist a uh, YouTuber, and it's kind of about the left's martyr complex by doing compare and contrast of why the left, or at least American culture, even tolerates shirts with Che Guevara, and not Fidel Castro. So, uh, the picture that he, you know, it's a video, but he starts the video uh, talking about the image of Shay, which you might be familiar with. It's on t shirts, it's on everything, it's on all kinds of merchandising because it was in the eminent domain. It didn't belong to anybody. Then, last, a video from a YouTuber named Sheep in the Box about um, not so much about splits in the left itself, but it's basically about why the left needs to split. Or not include uh turfs and other types of bigots he doesn't do a full exploration of like why is this not really a problem but it's particularly a matter of you know it's not good politics to exclude others right but if you are do a radical inclusionary process you end up excluding other people so it's really about when you do politics you are picking and choosing and making a choice about who you're including and who you're not. Some people have more privilege to include or say, I can work with people I disagree with, but they're actually still making a rather choice about who they choose to engage with uh, and do politics with and what that means. So, for no further ado, on with the program. Enjoy, and thank you for listening to The Three Lefts. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Uh, You'll just have the automated bumper at the end on on the show info.
7: A reading from the book of Neoliberinthians, chapter six, verse 12. For there are many problems in the world, but nay, the causes of them must never be discussed and thou shalt not. Upon witness of a grave injustice, thou shalt log into social media and express holy outrage. Thou shalt take the problem entirely at face value, and never shall you treat it as a symptom of a greater problem, or as part of a pattern, or something larger. Nay, thou shalt do none of these things, and Our Lady of perpetual correctness will shine down upon you. Amen. And as long as problems don't actually get solved, pointing at their symptoms and saying, that's wrong, looks pretty right. Here's two versions of criticizing racism. Number one, racism is bad and people shouldn't be racist. I'm not racist. If you're a racist, fuck off. Well, certainly not wrong, did that actually do anything besides feel awesome huh number two racism is an issue that was systematically built into the constitution of the united states of america the land itself was claimed through the genocide of the native peoples and the country was built on the backs of slaves who were kidnapped from their homelands across the ocean. Through amendments and various acts of government, some specific racially discriminatory actions have been outlawed, but the root cause of racism has not been addressed. On top of that, the system we base our society on, neoliberal capitalism, works to exacerbate all inequalities and capitalizes on perceived differences between various cultures and people for the purpose of consolidating power among the very wealthy who just so happen to be... mostly white. In every way, both in charter and in economic and social systems, our country is set up to be racist. And the only way we'll ever truly address that is through radical change on a systemic level. Make that shit your business. You're not gonna get thanked for it. You're probably gonna make nothing but enemies. But you know what? If everybody started doing exactly those things all at once, stuff would get done. And if stuff got done, well, it'd kind of stop mattering if you're right about it or not. If I wanted to be perpetually correct, someone who is considered an expert and consulted on various important issues, when a new incident arises, um... I might go with the first one. Method number one is how you're supposed to act. It's how your insular community is supposed to act. It's how the news media encourages you to act, and the way they act themselves. In newspapers, in blogs, in television programs, in YouTube streams. All of these nodes are exchanging information at an extremely high rate. The speed is the priority, in fact, and not necessarily the accuracy. All of these nodes consider themselves to be an expert, whether they're a professional, a semi-professional, or Larry, that dude on Twitter. In fact, one could call it a competition to determine who is the biggest expert, who is the most perpetually correct, and the most often, who can make other people feel as though they're correct, but not realize they're doing it, or have the people realize that they're having it done to them. And where to put the advertising. I mean, who'd have thought running a system that exploits itself for the benefit of only a few people would be so damn hard? Who'd have thought that managing impossibly large streams of data designed never to actually go anywhere would eventually lead us to a point where everything gets screwed up? And that's where we are now. Everybody's wish to live outside the material world, to have a personalized fiction that they can retreat to, I think it's probably a basic instinct. When we evolve the cognitive ability to understand how much we're suffering, We needed a coping mechanism. So all that violent stuff that happened in the era before the social contract could be tolerable on some level if you got caught up in it. If you couldn't get away, if you were being hacked up by a saber-toothed tiger, you could go away to your happy place. Or at least pass out and dream something. The access points that we have to the outside world, Facebook, Twitter, Google, CNN, Fox News, they all have the ability to show us the best version of the world for us. Bearing in mind that words are human creations and therefore subjective, best doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means, though. For the media, and for online ad-serving companies, best means best to get you to look at ads. If that means stirring up the paranoia that you've demonstrated with your recent searches, well, the algorithm will. It doesn't care. This is about your personal validation. That means running narratives about how terrorists are always going to kill you. The goal is to make you feel right, and to crave more opportunities to feel right. There's nothing out there that's more comforting. Even in the face of some of the worst things you've ever seen in your entire life, if you were right about it, if you were the one who's been saying it all along, well, on some level, you feel good about things. And you, me, your friends, your family, All the people you see talking on the television, all the people writing all that stuff on their Facebook and their Twitter, all the people posting their opinions to YouTube, we're all doing this. And let me be clear, an opinion is a good thing to have. Taking an actual stance on something is a good thing. Having convictions is a good thing. But when you figure out that the concept of fact is a human construct, and therefore subjective, that various systems have been established, both intentionally and accidentally, that take advantage of our flexible perception of facts, to exert some type of control. Well, that's... that's terrifying. In the early days of the internet, advocates for an interconnected network very much wanted to abolish the systems of power. But the net effect is not that there is no power. It's that information is power. See, the thing about power in meat space is that it's derived from either currency or resources. And you can't just think these things into existence. Resources need to be cultivated, mined, grown, etc. Since the internet is now considered part of real life, and since information acts as real power, why not just make up your own information? It's certainly easier than mining coal or drilling for oil or inventing a new technology, all you really need is a bunch of people who are willing to adopt the information as their own and tie their identity to it, so any criticism of it is viewed as an attack on them as a person, as opposed to questioning an organization or a politician with an agenda. So how the hell do we fix this shit? Tell me about it, stud. I probably didn't make your chills multiply, I'm sorry. Well, first, there's two words that we gotta get rid of personal brand. None of us are experts, okay? I don't care if you're Sherlock Holmes, or if you graduated with highest honors from an Ivy League school, or you have a massive amount of experience. We're all just people. We can't pretend we're anything other than that. Even the smartest among us don't know everything.
0: I'm a human, and I'm coming!
7: We need to accept the statistics being flashed in front of us are most likely the ones that a computer or a program director have deemed best for your eyes. They probably work to confirm something that you think you know already anyway. People have internalized the idea of an individualized reality just a bit too much. In order to attempt a collective reality, that is, one where we have constants that run through all people's experiences that we may one day again call facts, we have to first stop allowing liberties to be taken in measurable or verifiable information. All that amounts to is a cycle of perpetual correctness that establishes no consequences for repeatedly presenting misinformation. If we frame reality as collective circumstances and not as individual circumstances, then we can't ignore contradictory information that is verifiable. That is to say, I don't really give a shit if it doesn't fit the narrative, you have to report it. If we want to pop all of these so-called bubbles, if we want to break out of these customized individual realities, then we have to opt in to a collective reality and we have to work for it. We have to start having material goals. In other words, we need to set outcomes that we're shooting for, specifically a collective reality in which some experiences and information are not relative, but rather universal, restoring the social contract known as facts. And then all of our actions need to contribute to those goals. Now, we can't just say facts have to matter. We have to understand what's going on and enact material changes. We have to start acting and we can't stop anytime soon. The days of being correct are over. We can't think piece our way out of this one. And there isn't a single damn reason to think that you're comfortable anymore. The one vulnerability in perpetual correctness is that nothing
10: is
3: yeah, somehow in downloading that clip, uh, it, didn't, it clipped off the last word, which was certain. The thing about being perpetually correct is that one can never be certain of anything. Somebody else who's been on the show a few times is Noam Chomsky, yeah. and um, he's somebody who's also talked about um, you know, workplace
5: democracy. I'm just wondering if you have read him and if you look up to him and have any thoughts on
7: his work.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a little bit like Bernie. I mean, except for a longer time, he has been a voice of criticism, an alternative, whether particularly about foreign policy, where I found what he had to say very interesting and very useful. But on a whole range of issues, um, he didn't have the fear for whatever reason. Maybe you know, was a secure tenured professor at MIT and. Uh, recognized as a great linguist and all of that. Uh, So he was in a secure place. In a sense, I'm a little like him. In a sense, I've also been in a secure, I've been a tenured professor all my adult life because I went to elite universities. People don't know quite what to make of me, that I should be a critic of capitalism, but went to school at Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. That's all I ever went to, these three fancy-schmancy schools. So I have a, an ability to to get an ear, you know, have people listen a little bit. I try to be as fluent and as careful as I can. Um, but I admire that he was, in that sense, a pioneer saying what others feared to say or couldn't say and opening the space. I like that about Bernie. I like that about him. They do it in different ways, if you want to. Theoretically, I'm, I'm less of an anarchist than I think Chomsky is. I I believe in organizations. I believe in uh, working together. I believe in collective effort that requires an organization. If you asked me, you didn't, but if you did ask me, what's the single biggest uh, missing element on the left today, I would say to you, it's not the consciousness, although we need to develop that. It's not the understanding, although we need to develop that. And it's not the numbers. We have those. We don't have any organization. We are the most disorganized left I know of. It is an amazing testimony, in my judgment, to the isolation, individualism, and ideological underdevelopment of the American left that it cannot make organizations, or put it otherwise shrinks away, hesitates, skeptical, worried all the time that an organization will rob me of my individuality. It will tell me what to do. Even though you spend your whole life in a school or a job where you're being told what to do by people all the time. But when it comes to your volunteer political activity, you don't want that. Partly because you have to suffer it everywhere else. You don't want it here. This is a lovely idea, but that ain't gonna work. You need—you're not gonna confront a system as organized as capitalism is by simply hugging it to death. This is not gonna work. You need organizations. It's possible to have organizations that are not oppressive. It's possible to have organizations that are not arbitrary. It's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. But if you don't try, if you then you're just. You're disarming yourself. I don't mean arms in the physical sense you're disarming yourself and the system can afford to ignore you. I used to think the right was powerful. I now travel around the country, do a lot of public speaking all over the place, Texas, California, everywhere in between. And the left, which I knew was there, is much bigger and in many ways much deeper than the right. It's everywhere. It carries me that's why. I mean, I have my radio and television show. Those are all, I didn't do that. that I'm like on a leaf on a, on a raging river that's raw. That river is the American left. There are loads of people there with commitment and, and, and passion and all of that. But getting together in organizations, and whatever it is about American capitalism that has achieved that, in my judgment, that is the most important item protecting American capitalism. It is not the military, it is not the Republicans, it's not, it is that. It is always that way. Russia did not fall apart. The Soviet Union did not fall apart because we attacked them. They imploded, they fell apart. That is what will come to capitalism, too, as it has in many places, and it will again. What's keeping it for now is, whatever it is that disorganizes the left is absolutely crucial for them. And when that shifts, however that might happen, watch out. Because if that left that's out there congeals around a candidate or a party or a movement or something, then you'll see what you saw with Occupy Wall Street of what you saw with Bernie. Suddenly, millions of people are beginning. I remember giving talks in several of the Occupy Wall Street encampments when they would invite me. I remember one up in Bangor, Maine. They flew me up into Bangor, Maine to talk to people who had set up tents in this little town green. Bangor is a very small town, and it has a university and so forth. Orono is a suburb, is where the University of Maine is, and that's who brought me. So I gave a talk in an auditorium, and I began to notice something, which I then saw everywhere. After about half of my talk was over, people who had been listening attentively and perfectly nice, I began to watch their eyes, because you know I'm the, I'm the speaker, I see the audience, and their eyes were no longer on me, so my ego got over that and their eyes went to one another. And when it was over, they were looking around the room. At the end of the meeting, I took two or three of them aside who came up to talk to me at the end, and I told them I noticed that what's going on, that they laughed. They said, we all can't understand. Oh, who are these people? There were 300 people in the URTOA. Nobody in that room thought that there were 300 people who would come and hear me talk about whatever to the Occupy Wall Street. They were learning that they weren't alone. They were Now the next question is how do we ever, which they were smart, these young people, how do we get them together again? How do we organize so we aren't 300 people in this little town, you know, 300 people that coordinated and clear in their mind of what they want, that's it, that changes that town. Any 300 who did that would change the town, right wing, left wing, not making difference. Uh, they all understood in a flash, in a way that no lecture and no book would have done. They, they saw what their problem was. They didn't have an organization. That this little spark, this bizarre tent city in their muddy downtown, you know, field, was the catalyst. Who would have thought it? You know, it's like in chemistry, there's something called a supersaturated solution. You know a bit about chemistry. If you dissolve a salt in water, it disappears. You just see the water, right, because the, the crystals dissolve. But you keep doing that, and you get to a point where the concentration in the water, which you can't see, but it's such a dense concentration of the salt, that the next little crystal you drop in, teeny piece, just like the others, immediately it solidifies. It. it congeals around that last one it can't handle another solid and keep its liquid form. That's it. That's the metaphor. You're developing a super-saturated solution in the United States, and the next little thing, we'll all wonder how this little thing could do it, but it's not. It's a super-saturated solution that the little thing transforms, and suddenly you're going to have
6: what you had before. Hmm. Nothing happens by itself. It's so important that people put themselves to building institutions. You know, the point isn't for us to have good ideas. The point is to translate good ideas into institutions, into new societies, in fact, to transform the world. No revolution has come merely from good ideas. Revolutions come from a great deal of hard work. What I want to talk about. You know, for a very long time, Lisa, my colleagues, uh, our colleagues in India, Suchetna, Archana, we have created a communist history group. And out of that group, the first volume of our endeavor appeared called Communist History, in which Lisa and Margaret had essays. And they were superb essays. It's a book you've never, ever heard of or read, because it's published in India. And because it's published in India and because of the International Division of Book Publishing, it has never crossed your path. You know, this whole idea of globalization is a fraud. <laughs> what globalization means is the stuff you produce in the West comes to the rest of the world. But what is produced in New Delhi is not read in New York City. But still, this volume, Communist History, was, I think, an important intervention, or so we thought. But I also want to talk about what happened after 1991. And in a sense, how we've been intellectually defeated. I want to start, because we are in New York City, with a terrific play written by Tony Kushner, which you may may or may not have seen or read. And it's the part of his very large and wonderful body of work called perestroika. In the opening of Perestroika, the scene is wonderful. It's the Great Hall of the People. Imagine, it's the last five or six years of the USSR. In the Great Hall of the People, the delegates are discussing the question of what is this glasnost? What is this Perestroika? Gorbachev and the other revisionist surrenderists were leading the charge to dissolve the Soviet Union, essentially. And out of the shadows comes comrade Antidiluvievich. He comes there shriveled over, you know, and stands in front of the people. And he says, when I was young, we had a theory. He said, we had a theory. The theory guided us to make a revolution. He's the world's oldest Bolshevik. He remembers 1917, last year, 100 years ago. We had a theory that led us, the theory of the worker peasant alliance led us not only to overthrow the czar, but to prevent the bourgeoisie from taking us back to the war. We had a theory. And he says, you nep-men, referring to the new economic policy in the 1920s, you nep men, you shriveled excuses of humanity, he says. What is your theory? Do you have a theory? He said, if you had a theory, you who want to dissolve the USSR, if you have a theory, I'll come with you to the mountain. We'll stand together and we'll watch the new dawn rise. He says, but you don't have a theory. And then there's the best line in the play. He says, even a snake, when it sheds its skin, has another skin that it's grown. Do you have a new skin, my little serpents? In 1991, something catastrophic happened. And it's hard to explain in New York City the nature of the catastrophe. Many people in the United States lived under the shadow of the Cold War, McCarthyism, with their own perspective about the socialist bloc, their own ideas about, I don't know, what do the Trotskyites always say? State capitalism degenerated, this, that, and the other. I mean, the best slogans possible to describe what had happened to the lands on the other side of the Iron Curtain. In many ways, the theory inside the West had already prepared the West or Western left to celebrate the collapse of the Soviet Union. Your attitude towards the collapse of the Soviet Union is so different from the attitudes in the third world. Because the experience of what the Soviet Union was, was different. The first, I think, thing that we need to just put into a basic understanding of intellectual life after 1991 was that we completely erased everything that happened on the other side of the Iron Curtain. For instance, take the DDR, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. After 1991, it was assumed that East Germany was a Stasi state. You didn't need to know anything else about it. From the first entry of Soviet troops into the eastern half of Germany until 1991, it has no history. It is merely a police state. Once you allow imperialism to define entirely the history of the Soviet bloc, once you allow imperialism to do that defining, you don't need to know anything about it. Nothing else is necessary. You don't need to know, for instance, that so many students from the continents of Africa and Asia particularly, studied in East Germany, in the DDR. They were not communists, by the way. They came to do university there, because university was virtually free for them. They went back home as engineers, as doctors, as teachers, as professionals. They didn't experience the DDR in this monochromatic way. I'm not saying that DDR didn't have a lot of problems, friends. That's not the point of what I'm saying. But if you're a sensitive historian, surely it's not enough to condemn an entire part of the globe, at least 60 years of its history, into a two-word line, police state. Surely that's not, you know, sensible people know that that's not sufficient. I mean, you want me to have a nuanced understanding about the United States? You want me to talk about labor movements and the civil rights movement and the women's movement? Meanwhile, this country is destroying every country on the planet. You want me to be excised about Russian interference in the American election? Meanwhile, which election has the United States not interfered in? <laughs> Nuance is allowed for the West. But there's no nuance allowed for anywhere else in the world. We're not allowed to understand complexity. So the first casualty of the defeat of 1991 was the real existing history of everything the other side of the Iron Curtain was erased. So once you erase that, socialism is a real penalty. We can't talk about the fact that they experimented with making societies where. Houselessness was not a problem. You see, you just walk in this city anywhere, you will see people sleeping on cardboard boxes. It's an abomination. We have to recognize that as a consequence of the collapse in 91, it was not the left that disappeared in the third world. It was the left that disappeared in the West. It didn't even disappear in Japan. The Japanese Communist Party, whether it's social democratic or we can debate all that, continues to have a role in Japanese society. But in the West, the communists surrendered completely. Social Democrats surrendered completely, willingly. Where are the parties in the West? They vanished after 91. Some of this was that they were a victim again. If we go back to comrade anti Diluvievich, they were a victim of Eurocommunism. They were a victim of broaderism. They were a victim of their own illusions, you know, which didn't put them at the heart of the working class movement in these societies. Maybe they didn't pivot swiftly enough to deal with the facts of what we call globalization. But certainly, there was an ideological and institutional surrender in the West. To recapture that movement is essential. You cannot have a global left unless there is a left in the West. You cannot have global victories unless there is a robust left inside the United States that's smashing this military enterprise. I don't just mean the US military, but arms sales. People in Yemen being killed daily because of US and British arms sales to the Saudi regime. You've got to have a strong left in the United States to destabilize the militarism. You cannot build socialism in Venezuela. And some of you will say, oh, Venezuela, so many mistakes. You know, for all the complaints you have about the Venezuelans, what have you done here to destabilize the financial power of the United States to shut the taps on credit to any country that they don't want to see lubricated with finance? It's not a question of you spending your time judging countries around the world. The responsibility, and I take this from the understanding in Beijing, the responsibility is to build a movement here. That was a major casualty of 1991. You cannot have internationalism, just to draw from Ani's point. You cannot have internationalism based on liberal sympathy. I feel bad for the people of Yemen. You have to have a concrete understanding of the situation. And that concrete understanding today would lead you to put at the center the question of the arms industry and how the United States as a country benefits from selling, basically, mechanisms of death to people around the planet. Third, intellectual defeat. It's really interesting how, in the 1990s, Theories of spontaneity arrived as the new explanation for everything. In other words, the concept spontaneity, which in Marxist theory has a very particular resonance, was taken out of its context and began to mean, let the people do things. People are doing things. You know, It became this banal idea. Look, they're doing things. Look, they're doing things here. The scholar's role now was merely to point fingers. They're doing things there. They're doing things there. They're doing things there. Why? How? How are they doing things? People don't just do things. They have to organize things. When Rosa Luxemburg wrote, I think, quite seriously about the concept spontaneity within a Marxist framework, she was interested in the dialectical interplay between spontaneity, organization, and vanguardism. In other words, she was trying to write in a context where political party of the people must not believe that it is the main driver, main force of history, but must understand that it works alongside the currents of working people, where there might be spontaneous outbreaks of rebellion, which the party must be engaged with. That was her point. Her point wasn't that people just rise up, you don't need organization. It was not so banal. Because what happens with new social movement theories, you don't need organizations anymore. You just have people rising up. Zapatistas rise up. It's not true. It's not true. It doesn't work like that, friends. They spend years building with each other. But what this theory, Social movement, what it does is, it means you can go back and you can write a history book without having the organizers. I find this amazing. These books are still written till this day. There will be a book about a strike, trade union strike, but the activities of the union vanish, and even more strikingly, the communists disappear. There are no communists in these histories or they become, as Margaret says, black radicals. I think that's actually the highest form of racism because you haven't taken the people seriously. They have ideas. They are not merely black radicals, which is a reduction of a person to what you think is their identity. You don't understand that the black radical tradition is a rich engagement with Marxism, with anarchism, with all kinds of currents of the left. It's not merely about identity. It's ridiculously infantilizing of the people that built organizations. This is Guerrillero Heroico, one of the most iconic
11: photographs of the 20th century. Taken by Alberto Corda in 1960, it quickly spread across social movements across the globe. Looking at the image, it's not hard to see why it captured the hearts of so many people. Here's an attractive, rugged, determined revolutionary ripped from context and space so that it appeals to anyone with a vision for a better world. And the story of the real Che Guevara really lives up to the art. Being one of the founding fighters behind the Cuban revolution, after overthrowing the Batista regime, he decided to leave his government post behind and fight with revolutionaries across the world. He had accomplished everything he wanted and decided to leave it all behind anyway. The Eternal Revolutionary ended up dying at the hands of the Bolivian army in the thick of the Bolivian jungle. His response to his captors echoed through time.
3: This translates to, I know you are here to kill me. Shoot, coward. You will only kill a man.
11: This is the short romantic history of Che Guevara that's known in popular culture. But his sworn comrade and confidant Fidel Castro hardly gets the same affection. Both men fought valiantly, overthrew an oppressive regime, and changed the fate of the world forever. But outside of Chicano communities, the popular appeal of Fidel is limited. And even among radicals, many criticize Fidel for the shortcomings of the Cuban government. Putting aside any real criticisms we might have of the two revolutionaries, this dichotomy of legacy is a part of a wider problem. We love revolutionaries, but only when they're martyrs. Juanes Manuel is a historian and a member of the Partido Comunista Brasileiro, and he believes that this dichotomy has a lot to do with the influence of Christianity on Western culture. And if my audience statistics are correct, and you're a 20 to 30-something male living in the United States, You probably don't think Christianity or the Catholic Church would ever have an influence in your way of thinking, but Manuel would disagree. The Catholic Church is the longest operating institution in the West. No other institution has managed to stay alive for so long with a capacity to disseminate and circulate ideas and concepts through a body of intellectual priests, bishops, and theologians organized within a bureaucracy like the Catholic Church has. So it's impossible to speak seriously about Marxism, politics, subjectivity, culture, and the symbolic field in the West without incorporating the role of Christianity in each social formation, in each specific country, as elements of analysis. Christianity forms the structure upon which culture in the United States is built upon. It influences the tales we tell about ourselves and others, even if as individuals we're not Christian, it's an ever-present force, just like Confucianism in China and Islam in Africa. Now, I wouldn't be the first to draw parallels between Jesus Christ and Che Guevara, but it's a comparison worth noting. We love Che because on some level, he's a secular Jesus Christ. He's so powerful as a symbol because he died a saintly death. Meanwhile, Fidel's an old bureaucrat and this doesn't provide the same visceral feelings of affection. But don't let that fool you. Fidel's Cuba is what Che was fighting for, and every single stumbling block, every bad decision, and every error are part of the same legacy. As much as many would like to, there is no separating them. They're the same struggle. Many people might disagree and say, well, Fidel betrayed the ideals of the revolution. If they're socialists, they'll probably point to the mistakes as examples of how what he was doing wasn't real socialism. And I understand why people do this, but Manuel would argue that it's another facet of Christian influence on Western thinkers. Like a theologian trying to explain away the bloodstained past of Christianity, they'll argue that the doctrine is one of compassion and love for one another. Sure, the church might have worked with dictators and fascists, enabled widespread suffering and abuse, but hey, those were misapplications of the Holy Gospel. Manuel writes that there is a constant throughout the entire history of Christianity which is that these elements don't corrupt the doctrine, they are either false expressions of Christianity, or they are just facts, like potatoes in a sack, that have no theoretical, political, or most importantly, theological meaning. According to some people, it seems like every time the dust of the revolution settles, the new government, the new institutions, and the new leaders betray the doctrine. Therefore, nothing is socialism and everything is state capitalism. Nothing is socialist transition and everything is state capitalism. The revolution is only a revolution during that glorious moment of taking political power. Starting from the moment of building a new social order, it's over. This is a problem, because the destruction of an existing social order only constitutes half of a revolution, and the other half is building something new. Without critically engaging with what happened in that second half, and instead just disowning its legacy, we fail to understand the revolution and the people involved entirely. But this only explains one facet of the problem. Inherent with our love for martyrs, we also romanticize failure and poverty. Manuel highlights the discrepancy in treatment between Palestine and North Korea both countries fought similar struggles and ended up decimated by imperialism. In the case of North Korea, the country lost around 15% of its population in the Korean War, with the US bombings leaving the country a desolate wasteland. Don't believe me? In 1951, Senator John C. Stennis stated, Oh yes, I would say that the entire, almost the entire Korean Peninsula is just a terrible mess. Everything is destroyed, and there is nothing standing worthy of the name. Meanwhile, Palestine has been described as an open-air prison, with Israel openly committing genocide upon the Palestinian people. But look at the differences between how the two are treated. Korea is not a defenseless nation. Palestinians are a people who are deeply oppressed in a situation of extreme poverty. Therefore, Palestine is the total incarnation of the metaphor of David versus Goliath, Except that this David doesn't have a chance of beating Goliath in political and military conflict. Therefore, almost everyone in the international left likes Palestine. People become ecstatic looking at those images, which I don't think are very fantastic, of a child or a teenager using a sling to launch a rock at a tank. Look, this is a clear example of heroism, but it is also a symbol of barbarism. This is a people who do not have the capacity to defend themselves facing an imperialist colonial power that is armed to the teeth. They do not have an equal capacity of resistance, but this is romanticized. Western leftists like the situation of oppression, suffering, and martyrdom. Meanwhile, North Korean people are not treated with any sympathy over their struggle against imperialism. When talking about North Korea, the story never starts with the United States decimating the country, With North Koreans living paranoid and fearful of US bombings for over 3 years, progressives like John Oliver, who are the supposed voice of the left, hardly even bring it up. But since they weren't beaten into the dust, and instead stood up and built a nation that could contend with these global superpowers, they're suddenly not worthy of consideration, not worthy of critical support against an imperialist force that wants to wipe them off the face of the planet. Finally, I'm going to quote Manuel one final time because he's a damn good writer and says this all way better than I ever could. The idealization of Che and dismissal of Fidel is a microcosm for the larger idealization of eternal resistance. When Bernie Sanders lost the Democratic primary for the second time, a renowned Marxist professor at the University of Sao Paulo posted on Facebook, We fought like never before. We lost as usual, but the fight continues. Now, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is the future of socialism in the United States. The Marxist logic of thinking of all political conflicts in terms of strategy, tactics, coalition politics, programs, of critically analyzing mistakes to avoid making them again, of hitting the enemy from a political or even military standpoint in order to take power has simply vanished, replaced by an eternal movement of resistance as if it were proof of divine grace. The very logic that should be the essence of politics, which is the logic of strategy, is devalued as resistance becomes an end to itself. This explains why the image of Che, the eternal revolutionary, is so popular. For the past 50 years, that's all movements have aspired to be, an eternal resistance. And in that light, The Guerrillero Heroico takes on a corrupted meaning, it's no longer an image of representing brave revolutionaries, it stands as a symbol of left complacency, a resistance too fearful to take risks, build power, and meaningfully challenge the status quo. No wonder it's been co-opted and plastered on anything you can imagine. Eh, Maybe next time I'll print Fidel stickers instead of Che ones. Now if you made it this far, I don't want you to think I'm apologizing for atrocities or supporting men like Fidel, Kim Jong Un, or anyone else in everything they've done. But they're just that, men, individuals who had to navigate the turbulent waters of being the figurehead of a movement, and then nation, of a million conflicting interests, trying to build a new world surrounded by forces that antagonize them at every single turn. And just like Fidel and Che were engaged in the same struggle, if you're anti-imperialist, you're engaged in the same common struggle as authoritarian leaders like Nicolás Maduro of Venezuela or of the Vietnamese Republic. We can critically examine the mistakes of a hereditary monarchy like that of North Korea, we can find that we don't agree with the policies of countries like China, and we can vow to do better than past generations of revolutionaries. But we have to engage critically with the work of movements who have come before us. Because once we start dismissing these struggles without any other thought, then we might as well stop calling ourselves leftists. Anyway, that's the video. I printed out stickers that I'm giving out to anyone who's ever supported the channel with a donation. They'll be going out in the next few weeks, but I'm waiting to get a good headcount before I print them. So please, please, please contact me on Twitter or email if you've ever donated, and I'll get them to you right away.
12: A common, and to be fair, not entirely unfounded, criticism of the left as a concept is this idea of splitting the left, dealt with rather bitingly all the way back in the life of Brian in 1979.
10: The only people we ate more than the Romans are the Judean people's front. Yeah. Yes. Us. And the Judean popular people's front. Oh, yes. yes. Split us. Split us. And the people's front of Judea. Splitters. Split Split the people's front of Judea. Splitters. We're the people's front of Judea.
12: And the tendency of progressives to hold one another to such high standards as to be almost impossible to ever successfully unite in a significant enough way to ever really command as much power and influence as the right or centre. One defence of this tendency, and the one I like to tell myself whenever a major left-wing personality is publicly ousted from the movement, is quite simply that, unlike conservatism, or more general right-wing movements, leftism, and especially socialism, is by its very nature inclusive. And so as a result, people who spread or support hatred of any kind must be ousted. In essence, it presents us with a tolerance paradox. In order to make our movement inclusive and tolerant to all, we must necessarily be intolerant towards those who would seek to victimise the vulnerable. However, this approach, noble though it may be, does weakness on the left, because it means that however influential or supportive one might be of leftist politics, any minor infraction or going off script, so to speak, can result in a dogpile, which ends with the person involved getting labelled as problematic and essentially shunned within the movement. H Bomber Guy, for example, a popular leftist YouTuber, has had a number of these issues, which, whilst it hasn't quite diminished his popularity, and I'm still a really big fan, has led to a lot of prominent leftists distancing themselves from him. For example, the subverted R Late Stage Capital, which has this statement on its page regarding him, and has banned all content from him being posted until such time as they believe he has shown genuine remorse for their interpretations of his actions. And he is just one example of this phenomenon, another might be Movie Bob being heavily attacked by many leftists for his perceived quasi-eugenicist pro-meritocracy viewpoints, for example. I'm not going to pass judgement on any of this or any of these people, but I did think it was noteworthy. Now, with all that out of the way, I'm going to split the left by taking aim at turfs and swerfs and outline why I feel that the these people have no place in any left-leaning movement. TERFs. It should go without saying that I, like most leftists, am adamant and passionate about the inclusion of all social, sexual and ethnic minorities, and frankly the fact that true equality for many of these groups has not been achieved is shameful and unacceptable to me, but it seems that not everyone on the left agree with me. Allow me to introduce you to TERFs. So, what's a TERF? Well, the term stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, and basically means feminists who don't think that transgender people are real, or occasionally right-wingers who like to pretend to be on the left in order to be dicks to trans people. Due to the recent increase in mainstream awareness of trans people and issues, TERFs have found themselves, along with trans people, thrust into mainstream consciousness, as they're often used as a stick with which to beat marginalised people, in the same way that right-wing members of ethnic minorities are often used as tools to further The oppress said minorities. Morgan Freeman agrees with me, therefore it's black people's fault that they struggle and systemic oppression doesn't exist, for example. But it's hard to, when you say that to some
1: people, because they say, oh, there you go with a pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing, and, you know, you're just being respectable. Not everybody can do that. Everybody
4: can.
12: Because, hey, I'm not being offensive, this feminist agrees with me. As Claudia Brown eloquently put it...
4: I'm not King Lapdog, I'm not your token feminist, I'm not your blue-eyes white dragon you can pull out and <laughs> win your battle here, like...
12: <laughs> Prominent turfs include J.K. Rowling, disappointing but unsurprising considering her track record in recent years, Jermaine Greer, who is just the worst person and the worst feminist I'm aware of...
6: And apparently people have decided that because I don't think that post operative transgender men, uh, i.e. M2F um, transgender people are women, I'm not to be allowed to talk. But surely if a a man who feels that he actually would like gender reassignment to make him, her feel more comfortable in her body, then that's what should be done, they should be allowed to do that. I'm not saying that people should not be allowed to go through that procedure. What I'm saying is it doesn't make them a woman.
12: And Lacey Green. But their movement has been increasing popularity to the point where Jeremy Corbyn's recent support of transgender rights caused significant controversy within the Labour Party and elsewhere. Quite frankly, I'm not sure what to even begin to say about these people that hasn't been said much more eloquently elsewhere, other than to say, TERFs. Or well, to point out that the scientific consensus is that transgender people do exist, and that like sexuality, gender is more of a spectrum than a binary, so as a result, being a turf is the feminist equivalent of being a climate change denier or flat earther, except with none of the fun conspiracy built and a ton more bigotry. I believe that turfs represent a perfect antithesis of what the feminist movement strives for, equality. By ignoring scientific consensus and demonising marginalised people simply to further a radical and factually inaccurate, crusade is ideologically no different to denying women the vote because they can't think logically, except instead of arguing that certain people don't have the mental capacity, they're arguing that they simply do not exist, which is honestly a new one on me. SWERFS. So, what if you are a cis-female, sexually-empowered woman who decides to go into sex work? Well, then turfs won't give you any issues unless you also believe that gender is not a binary. However, you will then have to deal with the other, surprisingly prudish, subset of feminism, SWERFs, or Sex Worker Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Much like turfs, SWERFs believe that equality comes with caveats, except that the one they get hung up on is sex workers, and people who capitalise on their own sexuality rather than transgender people. However, unlike turfs, who are easy to dismiss as Idiots who ignore scientific consensus simply in order to push an extremist, bigoted agenda. SWERFs are more ideological in nature. It probably goes without saying, but I despise SWERFs. Turfs are bad enough, are often violent and can make the lives of trans people unbearable at times, but ideologically they're just old-school racists or homophobes wearing different clothes and with different targets. No, what makes SWERFs so insidious is that, quite simply, they lie about their intentions and claim to be acting in the interests of sex workers in order to push some. Bolt about sexual morality. So why is this so egregious to me? Well, the short answer is simply that you can't wear a hat that says Feminist on it if in tiny, unreadable, small print it also says but not if you have a job I disapprove of, or of course, not if you're trans, for the TERFs. The core tenet of feminism, social justice, etc. has to be equality for all, not excluding certain people or groups based on any factors, but especially not what capitalism forces people to do in order to pay their bills. Further, the fact that they have an issue with sex workers selling their bodies, yet don't seem to understand that selling their bodies is also what anyone who has any kind of physical job does every day is extremely troubling. Logically, if having sex for money is selling one's body, then so is working on a construction site or in a kitchen, etc. The fact that so many people wish to exclude sex workers from society exposes some of the most vulnerable to potentially much more dangerous situations and conditions that would not be deemed acceptable or up to safety or hygiene standards in a legal or non-taboo industry. And for what? Some kind of moral crusade of the Mary Whitehouse variety? The fact that anyone can believe that these ideas are even compatible with feminism, either turfs or swerfs, is both disgusting and despicable to me. Conclusion Many may accuse me of splitting the left, but I feel that if we allow our movement to be taken over and co-opted by hateful ideologues, pushing their reductive ideologies, the left deserves to die. Yes, it may mean that we don't have the same amount of influence as the right who do not have this problem, as excluding people is often the point of right wing policies. But if we allow ourselves to become a movement that allows the social equivalent of flat earthers and people who act actively seek to make the lives of vulnerable women more difficult, we will have lost more than just a couple of elections. After all, where, politically, marginalized people turn when the right hates them, the centrists either don't care or pretend they don't exist, and the left abandons them to gain the support of bigots?
3: First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, Stories, topics, or rantings, you message on Facebook, Twitter at Three Left Show. You can also email at Three Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 left show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the Three Lefts.